Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So in the book of Ephesians, there's set forth an understanding, I think it's there in the, in the New Testament in general, a very different sense of power. And that's why I want to go back to this opening verses. That in politics, in culture, in history, or in our daily lives, I think there is a power system, we might even call it a salvation system, that is founded upon coercion, the power of force, or actually violence. And this is a system in which death and the power of violence is deployed as the primary valuation of power. And so this is what my my title here is, The Power of Life versus the Power of Death. And I think what we're describing then is the system of the world as over and against the understanding introduced in Scripture. That is, I think we can read the whole Bible as altering our common understanding of the way power works or what power is. So first of all, power in scripture is not impersonal. It is not about the power of the cosmos, the power of nature, or even the power of law. But what we have in scripture is the personalized understanding of power connected with God, that God is the power above all powers. God's deliverance of Israel is a demonstration of his power. You know, he can deliver from out of slavery. As Deuteronomy 3.24 says, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? So this historical event is a demonstration that there is a greater power than the power of the cosmos than the gods of Egypt, that a historical event experienced as the mighty act of God. And this then is, it's explained as part of the goal of history. It's in, you know, it's in terms of history and creation that power is brought together in who God is. The power of Yahweh. He's a person. The person of God is the primary power. So it's not nature, you know, in Japan, the gods are really gods of nature. And that's typical of world religion. Or we might think the power of nations, the power of armies. And I think that really what we're talking about is an impersonal power. And of course the ultimate impersonal power is death. And so God's power shapes and fashions. Isaiah 40, 26 says, We lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number. You know, looking up at the stars of heaven. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. And so God is creator, He's preserver of the world, he creates, he upholds, but he's also the determiner of where history is going. 
The power of God fashions history. And this is the same power that creates and sustains the world. This is maybe commonplace for us. But in world history and in terms, I think, of our daily life, this is very different. It's a very different notion than what prevails in most of the world. You know, in Japan, that power is invested in sacred objects. The mirror, you know, in the shrine or the, the sword or there's all of these kind of magical objects, sacred groves. You know, Mount Fuji, a sacred mountain. We live near a sacred mountain, Mount Scuba. And this then gives rise to religion based on magic, on power aimed at manipulating the forces of nature. So in the Bible there is this unique conception of God and power and this then comes to the focus even in the Old Testament on the messianic figure who is Christ. That is that this messianic figure is going to reveal the power of God in a special way. This is Isaiah 11:2. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be upon him. It is Christ's power then which distinguishes him as he is introduced in the New Testament. This is why you know, the ministry begins, the healing ministry of Jesus is a ministry demonstrating the power of God in the world. In Luke 4.14 it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And so the New Testament miracles of Jesus, they're not magic. You know, this isn't an impersonal force like the majority of miracles outside of the New Testament. But the miracles are evoked through the word of Christ, through the word of Jesus. He speaks and it happens. It's like creation. God speaks and the world comes forth. And the key power moment in the life of Christ is demonstrated in the defeat of the power of death. So look at Ephesians 1, 18 to 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come here is ultimate power the picture is that in Christ believers experience this power the surpassing greatness of his power and it says we understand the strength of his might in the resurrection and ascension now this is power of a different order this is a power of a different kind this is a power over and against the power of death that we see in the world. He is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly place. That is his resurrection, his exaltation implies that he's disarmed all cosmic powers. 
And this is a key part of the victory of Christ. He's defeated sin, death, and evil. There is a redefinition of power. That's what I'm saying. And I think we have to get this. I, I sometimes think we don't live with this understanding of how we're to understand power in a new way. The power of God revealed in Christ is a different order of power. I think that's step one. And Christ is exalted above all these powers. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The power of being joined to God, the power of the love of God. God is acting in Christ to establish believers in this new order of power. Maybe we could just call it the power of love, which has defeated the power of death, the power of violence, the power of hatred. We might think of two competing powers. But actually, I think we should probably think, and this is the way that Hannah Arendt, who is a philosopher, a political scientist, the way she describes it. And though she's not a Christian, she's coming out of Nazi Germany, she's a political theorist, I think she comes up with a very Christian understanding of power. And maybe with her saying it, oh, here's somebody who recognizes that the way that we normally judge power is probably mistaken. And that is that the central teaching of the Bible that I've just described, that the greatest power is the power of life, the power of love, the power of communion, as we were talking this morning, the power of a community, the power of communication. I think we can pass that over and as a kind of religious pablum. We all know that those who have the most weapons or the most material resources, oh, they're the real power brokers. You know, whoever's got the biggest gun. What is power except power over other people? The power of exploitation. The power of the master over his employees or his slaves. Power, said Voltaire, consists in making others act as I choose. According to Max Weber, power is present wherever I have the chance to assert my own will against the resistance of others. Whoever has the strongest will. Weber defines power as the power of war. It's an act of violence to compel the opponent to do as we wish. One major theorist in this, Robert Strauss, who claims the power of man over man, that's what power signifies. C. Wright Mills equates violence, politics, and power. He says all politics is a struggle for power, and the ultimate kind of power is violence. Mao Zedong maintained power grows out of a barrel of a gun. Karl Marx argued that power is the organization of violence. Bertrand de Juvenel, who writes a major work on power, claims that the power of death, or the power to make war, is the very essence of the power of the state. 
He says, to him who contemplates the unfolding of the ages, war presents itself as an activity of states which pertains to their essence, the power of death. As he describes it, a man feels himself more of a man when he is imposing himself and making others the instruments of his will. And this gives him incomparable pleasure. Elsewhere he says, to command and to be obeyed. Without that, there is no power. With it, no other attribute is needed for it to be the thing without which it cannot be. That is, the essence of power is command and control. So Aaron goes through, she's doing this survey, and she concludes that if the essence of power is the effectiveness of command, then there is no greater power than that which grows out of the barrel of a gun. And it would be difficult, she says, to say in which way the order given by a policeman is different than that given by a gunman. And so in short, power, in this understanding, is the power of death. And the one who can control and met out coercion and violent death is the one with the power. War and the capacity to make war is a primary ordering structure such that war itself, the juvenile says, is the basic social system within which other secondary modes of social organization, you know, the economic, the political, bodies of law, they all really are extensions of war by other means. And even in this understanding, you know, diplomacy, politics, aren't these, he says, war by other means. And maybe even peace is war by other means. That is, you know, if you think of the peace of the Cold War, it really reckons with the reality of deterrence through those who have larger and more powerful weapons. So we ensure the peace by mutually assured destruction. So the constant threat of war, the constant threat of annihilation, is the only realistic peace. Now I'm describing something that I think is not true, but it just grips us as seeming to be the case. I think it is not just the violence of war, though, which ensures peace, but we're actually describing something at a more personal level, that there's a kind of struggle or chaos, that humans seem to be born with the instinct to dominate with an instinct of aggressiveness. According to John Stuart Mill, he says there are two competing forces in the individual, the desire to exercise power over others and the disinclination to have power exercised over themselves. And so as Arendt points out, though the will to power and the will to submission, she says, well, they seem interconnected. And I, this is true too, you know, there is a, think of the Jews desiring to go back to Egypt and be slaves in Egypt. There's a kind of security there. The power of the dictator, the power of the king, God. But perhaps the lengths to which the tyrant will go, and this is Arendt's point, you know, if you look at somebody like Stalin, we suddenly see the limits of violence. So the Stalinist regime demonstrated that total domination based on total terror 
it cannot really afford friendship. It can't afford support even. Because the most subtle form of power, that of support and friendship, threatened Stalin. In the end, it was the friends and supporters of Stalin who he saw as posing the greatest threat. He killed off all of his friends. And the climax of terror is reached when the police state begins to devour its own children. When yesterday's executioner becomes today's victim, no one can have security in such a state. And of course, this is also the moment when power empties itself out. It disappears entirely. And this is Arendt's conclusion. She sums up, politically speaking, it is insufficient to say that power and violence are not the same. She says power and violence are opposites. Where the one rules absolutely, the other is absent. Violence appears where power is in jeopardy. But left to its own, it ends in power's disappearance. This implies it is not correct to think of the opposite of violence as nonviolence. To speak of nonviolent power is actually redundant. Obviously, power, she's saying, is nonviolent. Violence destroys power, and it is utterly incapable of creating real power. So nonviolence, or the capacity for peace as means and end, is the very definition she gives of power. She arrives at a Christian understanding, though she never touches, well, that's not true. She actually refers to the Apostle Paul as the first free human being. So the power of community, the power of communion, the power of consensus, the power of love, summed up as the power of resurrection, I think this stands over and against the notion that violence is power. Violence contains no possibility of communion. There is the communion of the scapegoat. You know, we all agree who our enemy is, and we kind of commune with having a mutual enemy. This was Rene Girard's depiction of the scapegoating mechanism, that it's a kind of construction of reality. I talked last week about Peter Berger's you know, picture and what they're both depicting is a kind of universal lie in which the fear of death or the imagined capacity to manipulate and control death, that is the lie I think that's there in the power of violence that is exposed by Christ. And so turn back to Ephesians and look at chapter 4 verse 25. Paul names the lie directly. In some of your translations, it just reads the plural, lying. But in the Greek, he says, Therefore, shedding the lie, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Because we are one another's corporal members. We are members of one another's body, the body of Christ. Dispelling the lie with the truth, I think, gets at the prime reality that we are corporal members. We're members of one another. This is the missing fact in the equation of power and violence. True power builds on this reality of mutual interdependence. Violence may gain a kind of control, 
but it's at the cost of this reality. Violence alienates. Violence destroys this community. And the lie here is singular and it's seemingly universal. I think Paul is saying, as much of the New Testament is describing, there is a singular lie that has gripped humankind. And Paul ties it to hostility, to enmity, unleashed, you know, first of all, between the Jew-Gentile divide that we've talked about, that he describes in 417 to 19 as the futility of mind, which has hardened people's hearts. And they have a darkened understanding. They can't even perceive reality. But he says as a result of the gospel, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there. This is Ephesians 4, 14 to 15. No longer tossed about by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the craftiness and deceitful scheming of men. But speaking truth in love. I guess that's the only kind of truth there really is. Loving truth. We are to grow up in all aspects. Into him who is the head. That is this loving truth gives forth in a corporate body. In which Christ is the head. And here the cancer of death. Of violence is cured. The disease of violent power is overcome as people are brought into this single body. This is, you know, Paul in verse 25, he talks about the cure. And maybe the cure then tells us what the problem is. Speaking the truth in love, it displaces the lie, the deceitful scheming. And this scheming serves discommunion. You know, where is the Holy Spirit? Oh, the Holy Spirit's wherever there's communion. Where is the unholy spirit? Where there is discommunion, where there is hostility, where there is enmity. And Paul continually links deception and alienation. Just as he links truth and love. Verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. There is the truth. Being members of another is a truth that by definition should result in putting away violent falsehood. Now another way of getting at this, and Paul does this here in in, uh, chapter 5. He employs the idea of imitation. And our understanding of power, I think, is one we imitate. We see this in children, you know, and if you have a group of children and they're all in a room playing with toys, what's the best toy to play with? Oh, whatever that other kid's playing with, that's the best toy. That is that we desire what the other desires. We imitate others. That may be the most human part of us, because even we know through modern linguistics that children learn to speak this way. They imitate. But the problem, of course, and this is Rene Girard's theory that I've talked about, is that if two children want the same toy, or two people want the same thing, it results in conflict. It leads to rivalry. It leads to violence. If one person imitates another person's desire, then this gives rise to rivalry. And Gerard, actually he places this front and center. And Gerard becomes a Christian. 
Because he hits upon this idea, he says, oh, this is what all people do. And then he realizes, oh, in the New Testament, Jesus also talks about imitation, mimesis. And Paul talks about it here, too. Look at 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. How do you walk in love? Well, you're imitators of God. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us. Paul actually says a very similar thing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are arguing, fighting with one another, actually about the Holy Spirit. You know, who's more spiritual? Who has the greatest gift? And Paul comes in with the recommendation and resolution of the problem in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me. Copy me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that's the way we follow Christ. We follow others or are following Christ. He says, give no offense. And actually he uses a word here. Do not become a scandal. You can get locked into this rivalry, into this violent kind of lifestyle. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, I do not seek my own advantage. Oh, there is a key, but that of the many, so that they may be saved. So he's describing, I relinquish my own desire that I would show forth the, the, the love of Christ. So be imitators of me, he says as I am of Christ. And Paul, I think, understands the scandal of violence, of mimetic rivalry. But this mechanism is undone. He says, I try to please everyone. I seek not my own advantage. What have we been describing as the power of the world? The power of domination, the power of coercion. These are set aside, and with it the violence producing rivalry. And Paul uses a word here, he calls it damnation. This is damnation, to get caught up in this violent sort of rivalry. And so to be saved is to imitate and commune in love. And to be caught up in the wrong sort of desire. And here I'm just going through chapter 5, verse 3. Paul warns against a whoring acquisitiveness. That is, here is a desire gone bad. He likens it to the acquisitiveness, the desire, the exponential desire of the idolater. Verse 5. He talks about being deceived in verse 5 of, by empty words. I think there's violent empty words and then there's the fullness of the word of Christ. He describes it as a kind of darkness. And then he says these things that are hidden in 14 are exposed by the light of Christ and now the life of Christ reigns in place of death. We've shifted our whole picture of power. We've shifted our whole understanding of what really counts. And the conclusion of the chapter is a displacement, I think, of sin's alienating violent power. That is, there is a kind of mystery, there's a kind of delusion and we've been freed from that delusion as we live and submit to one another. This is chapter 5, all through the chapter. How do you experience this? Oh, through mutual submission to one another. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I think here is the mystery that is the true mystery. But he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This communion, this participation in a singular body is the power of peace, the power of love that counters the lie of violence and death as the primary power. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.